You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. If you've ever had a uh, panic attack, you know that they're not very fun. And I remember my first panic attack like it was yesterday. It was uh, somewhere around 2014, and uh, Carrie and I were living in Kansas City. I was on the pastoral staff of a pretty large, like rapidly growing church, and we had two campuses, and I was the teaching pastor at one of the other campuses. And uh, up until that point, um, on the surface, I thought my life was awesome, and I, I I thought I was flourishing. I, I appeared to be flourishing. Um, I, uh, I, I excelled in my responsibilities. I kept getting promoted. Uh, for whatever reason, people wanted to follow me. And just by every kind of external measure, I was, I was sort of just a successful young pastor doing my thing. Um, what started to happen, though, somewhere around 2014 era, is beneath the surface, I, I began to experience this undercurrent of nonstop anxiety. Um, our church was just growing really, really fast. We, we used the image of we're building the plane as we're flying it, and none of us had any idea what we were doing. We're all like in our late 20s, early 30s, trying to figure this thing out. And uh, it's growing really fast. We're understaffed. My schedule is just full sun up to sundown uh, with meetings and ministry and sermon prep every week. And uh, I remember we had four services on a Sunday. We had a 9 a.m., 11 a.m., uh, 5 p.m. and 7 p.m. service. And so I would preach, you know, whoever's preaching would preach all four of the services. And so I remember on Sunday nights, uh, not leaving the office until almost 10 p.m. after talking with the last person after the 7 p.m. service. And I would stop by my favorite Chinese food place on the way home and get a whole just junk load of junky Chinese food, like really bad, cheap Chinese food. And Carrie would wait up for me just long enough for me to get home to kind of ask me, like, how did the rest of the day go and give me a kiss? And she would go to bed. And I would set up to like 1.30 in the morning eating Chinese food and M&Ms and binge watching stuff on Netflix. And I just, then I would wake up on Monday morning and I would do it all over again. Like I would wake up on Monday early off to the office and, and, I, and there's always kind of this gun pointed at me. It felt like that said, you got to have another sermon ready in six days. And by the way, it's got to be awesome. And um, there was this pressure, a lot of which I put on myself to kind of get up there and knock it out of the park every week. And so I had all this anxiety that started to grow around my performance as a pastor. And I just lived with this um, inner sense of, of hurry just constantly in my chest. Like my life was moving way too fast. I'm, I'm a small town guy, you know, and I'm just, everything's just happening so fast. I'm up early. I'm in a hurry to get ready. I'm in a hurry to get out the door in a hurry to beat the traffic in a hurry to get to the office in a hurry to prepare for this meeting in a hurry to respond to this person's angry text or email in a hurry to get the sermon prep. And it was just, I was just in a hurry. Okay. I remember one day, um, I didn't take a day off at this point in my life. I was working seven days a week and some of you in the room know what that's like. And, uh, I, I had been working all day on a Saturday trying to write my sermon because I didn't, I, I didn't have time to touch it much during the week. And so, um, I was in the basement in my office, in my house. And, um, I came up from the basement about 6 PM to eat dinner. Sermon's still not done. 
And I came up, and I'll never forget, Carrie, my wife, said that she just didn't recognize me. Um, she actually told me in that moment I looked like a ghost. And I, I felt like a ghost. felt like I was half alive, half dead, and just kind of numb. And I'll never forget, she looked at me and said, um, I don't know why she picked the number 40, but she said, um, if something doesn't change before you turn 40, you're going to die. And... Um, it was about that time that I ended up in therapy with Rich Plass, who many of you have heard us talk about. And um, Carrie and I went and did a, like a three or four day intensive with Rich in, in the Louisville area. And before that intensive, Rich had me do some pre-work. And one of the things he had me do was send him my schedule. He said, I want to see your job description. I want to see your schedule, list your responsibilities. I want to see how you're spending your time. And so I sent all that stuff to him. And no joke, when I got there, I sat across from he and Jim Cofield. It was the most intimidating thing. These two guys in their, in their almost 70 years old uh, with PhDs and like these sages. And it's me and my wife like sitting across, directly across from them, nobody else in the room. And they're just like digging into us. And he's got all my stuff that I sent him laid out on the table. My schedule, my role description, uh, all this stuff's laid out on the table. And he's just kind of combing over it. He said a lot of things to me that I'll never forget. But one of the things that he said to me is he, he looked at me and he looked at Carrie and he said, um, the first thing that you must do if you want to heal your anxiety, if you want Jesus to heal your anxiety and save your marriage and save your soul, really, the first thing that you have to do, Adam, is you have to slow way down. Like he's kind of looking at the papers like this is not this is not going to work. Your wife is right. If you keep running at this pace, you're not going to make it. You're, you're going to crash if you don't slow down. And that's what I was already starting to do, is crash. Um, fast forward, uh, four, almost five years later, uh, I'm, in a, I'm definitely in a different spot. I'm in a better spot. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with you and be a part of the staff and part of this team and part of this family. This is home. This is where I'm from, both my wife and me. And so emotionally, geographically, spiritually, in every way, we're in a better spot, but I'm still not out of the woods on this thing. Like something keeps trying to disciple me back into this and my flesh wants to cooperate with it. And so if I'm being honest with you, um, I, I still need Rich's words today um, just as much as I ever have before in my entire life. And the reason I share that story with you is something tells me I'm not the only person in the room who needs to hear that word from Rich. I think probably all of us could use a sit down across the table from him or at least a phone call. He'd probably give you one. Um, in 2017, there was an article uh, in the New York Times that was titled Prozac Nation is now the United States of Xanax. And in this article, uh, the author Sarah Fader writes this about contemporary American culture. She says, I'll put it on the screen. Um, if you're a human being living in 2017 and you're not anxious, something's wrong with you. In other words, if you have a peaceful presence, if you're relaxed in your disposition, you're able to be present with God and other people, you're a weirdo, okay? If you're not anxious, she said, something's wrong with you. I'm convinced that the anxiety and depression rate is higher today than it ever has been. Why? Because the conditions present today in American culture, that is the rapid pace at which we live, the bombardment we receive from all kinds of readily available technology, the sheer number of choices and options to do more, learn more, experience more, are so extreme that we are living with stress, stress, and more stress, and basically no margins. 
Indeed, we are so used to being overly busy and stressed out that we hardly even recognize it anymore. In other words, this kind of excessive busyness and all the anxiety and panic that comes with it is the new normal, she says. This is, just the, this is called America, baby. It's how we live, right? This is, this is what we do now. Everybody's kind of operating with this underlying sense of hurry. And the way you know you came in here with it this morning is you've got this, this exaggerated exhaustion. And this thing called anxiety and this thing called depression and all of that is trying to tell you that, hey, you need to slow down. Um, in fact, this has become such a problem for us that uh, psychologists and mental health professionals are now diagnosing people with hurry sickness. So it's an official diagnosis. And um, one psychologist describes it as a behavioral pattern characterized by continual rushing. So always in a hurry and anxiousness, always in a hurry, always anxious. And if you would have asked me a couple of years ago, I would have said, that's just called Tuesday, right? Like that's just life. That's I'm always in a rush and I'm always anxious. And what these guys are saying now is no, Adam, that's called a sickness. That's not the way that's, that's not the way humans are supposed to live. Something's wrong with you. And if you want to know if you have hurry sickness, um, one author gives 10 symptoms that you're moving through life too fast. And so I'll run through these quickly. Um, number one, irritability. So you easily snap at people. Number two, hypersensitivity. You get offended really easily. Number three, restlessness. You can't rest, can't take a day off, can't calm down, don't know how to stop, keep reaching for your phone. Number four, compulsive overworking. So can't stop answering email, can't stop sending out texts, say yes to every demand. Number five, numbness. You don't have the emotional capacity, particularly for empathy or compassion. We're going to see this in Luke 10 in a moment. Number six, escapist behavior. So binge watching Netflix, social media, pornography, alcohol, whatever is your emotional narcotic of choice. Number seven, you become disconnected from your identity and calling. So you get so sucked into the tyranny of the urgent, you forget who you are and who you're not. You forget what you're supposed to say yes to and what you're supposed to say no to, what you're called to and what you're not called to. So you lose sight of that. Um, Number eight, not able to attend to basic human needs like exercise, eight hours of sleep. We used to get 11 hours of sleep, by the way, before Edison. And now we're down to like averaging like under seven hours of sleep. So um, another one under, under human needs would be like cooking and eating healthy meals. We have an entire food industry built around hurry. It's called hurry food or fast food. Like get it in a hurry, right? By the way, it's not very good for you. So um, we're not able to attend to these basic human needs because we're just moving t- through life too fast. We don't have time to stop and cook. Who has time to stop and cook a meal, a home-cooked meal anymore? It's a, lo- it's a lost art. Um, number nine, hoarding energy because you just don't have any more to give. And finally, number 10, the most important, there's a slippage in spiritual practices. So the time you give to cultivating your relationship with God, your prayer life goes away. Sabbath is not a thing. Reading the word, living in community, all these kind of things that make for the best possible life are usually the first things to go. And the first time I read this, I was at least seven for 10, if not 10 for 10. And depending on the day or moment of the week, I could be somewhere around there still. And I'm not a psychologist, so I can't officially diagnose anybody in the room. But I wonder if we're being honest with ourselves, if you take a look at that list, if everybody in this room and everybody in this city and everybody on this planet doesn't seem to have hurry sickness. Because as far as I can tell, like everybody's in a hurry. Everybody's busy. In fact, I want you to start paying attention every time you kind of ask the routine question 
You bump into somebody, how are you? Just pay attention. It doesn't matter if they're high school, college student, young parent, empty nester, retired person. They all say busy. Oh, good. Just busy. Man, just running around from one thing to the next. I just feel like I'm being pulled in a thousand directions. Busy and anxious, if we're honest. Most of us are. To be clear, there are uh, two types of busyness. I think we need to talk about this for a second. Um, There's a healthy busyness that just means that you have a lot of good and necessary things to do and you're not wasting your life on social media or Call of Duty or Candy Crush or Snapchat or Panda Pop or I don't know, whatever. Um, you know, you're, 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 you're not binging on Netflix and Hulu and on YouTube and all that, but you're, you're going to bed exhausted because you're just making your life count. And uh, you're giving your life away to what really matters. Like you're working really hard at your job for God's glory and for the good of others. You're cultivating your relationship with God and with your spouse. And you're taking time to pour into your children and shepherd their hearts. And you're, you're bearing the burdens of your brothers and sisters in your missional community. And you're loving one another. And, and you're, you're making disciples. And you're on mission. And you're laboring for the kingdom of God. And therefore, at the end of the day, you're waxed. Right? Like at the end of the day, you've just, at, you go to bed just exhausted because you've been pouring out day in and day out for all this stuff that really matters. That's a good kind of busyness. Nobody's condemning that. And by the way, according to that definition of busyness, Jesus himself was quite busy and often exhausted. That's why you see him retreating and taking naps and applying some self care to himself because he poured his life out quite literally on the cross for what truly matters. However, there's another form of busyness that is far more common in our culture, and it's what's been referred to as pathological busyness. I know that's kind of a big word, but let me explain it to you. Pathological busyness is not just that you have a lot of stuff to do. Look, everybody's got a lot to do. Pathological busyness is you have too much to do. You work too many hours, say yes to too many things, kids involved in too many sports, too many activities, always on the go, always on your phone, texting and driving, texting while in the room with another person, texting while eating, texting, playing a game while watching TV, like just busy, 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 always multitasking. You got way too much to do. And so what happens is you have no, you've you've almost lost the art of being still. And you don't know how to be still anymore. And there's no space in your life to just let your soul breathe and like just catch up to your body for a moment and figure out like where in the world are you? And you've, we're losing the art of just being fully present to the moment and to our souls and to one another and especially to God himself. This is pathological busyness. The problem is that what most of us don't realize is this kind of business is actually doing violence to our souls. It's killing us. And, and it's not just a problem that's showing up in the culture. It's a problem that's showing up in the church. At the risk of having way too many quotes, uh, I will read to you what Michael Zigarelli, who's one professor, uh, here's what he did. He did a survey of the same 20,000 disciples in America, 20,000 people that follow Jesus, studied the same people for three years. And then based on his survey, he identified the number one problem we face in our discipleship to Jesus and in in trying to make disciples in the culture is that nobody has time to follow Jesus. He said that just nobody has time to slow down and live an emotionally healthy life and a spiritually vital life in relationship with God and others. Ain't nobody got time for that. Just don't have time for it. 
So give me Jesus like some fast food and then let me go because I got some other stuff. I'll add him as a little accessory, but then I got all this other stuff to do. It's like nobody has time to slow down and live the life that Jesus has called us to live. So here's what he says. It may be the case that, number one, Christians are assimilating a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to, number two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to, number three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to, number four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to, number five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and the cycle begins again. It's a vicious vicious cycle. And by the way, he writes that pastors are the worst at this, right up there with doctors and lawyers. Um, not your pastors, but other pastors really, I hear, struggle with this bad. Like, it's a really bad problem. Um, I think Ziggarelli is really helping us here because he's just, he's just putting his finger right on the problem. And this is what I want to talk about this morning if you haven't figured it out. Um, the problem is that for many, if not most of us, our lives are so hurried and so crammed full of activity and every in-between space you have is jammed in with some kind of screen or some kind of form of entertainment and we just, our lives are so, our souls and our lives are so cluttered that we've effectively pushed God to the margins. We've done the same thing the innkeepers did at Bethlehem. We've basically looked at him and said, I don't have any room for you. I just don't have any room for you in my life. And so we've marginalized and we've lost touch with the presence of God, which, by the way, is the one thing you have to have to live. And this is why the great Dallas Willard, as we've said before, he called hurry the great enemy of spiritual life. Hurry kills your spiritual life. And Willard said you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. That's the big idea that I want to talk about this morning. If you want me to sum up the whole sermon in a sentence, it goes like this. Um... In order for us to experience true life, real life, the life that Jesus offers in his kingdom, we have to get into the discipline of killing hurry before hurry kills us. Jesus makes it super clear in Luke 10 that the essence of the spiritual life is loving God and loving one another. That's, that's, that sums up life in his kingdom. You love God, you love one another. The reason hurry kills your spiritual life is because hurry kills your capacity for love and relationship with God and others. I don't care who you are, you just can't do love and relationship in a hurry. Which means you can't do Christianity in a hurry. You can't do discipleship in a hurry. You can't do love and relationship in a hurry. It's been said um, that love is spelled T-I-M-E, right? The way you know that your kids know that you love them is you spend time with them. Love takes time. Relationships take time cultivating. It's the reason why Paul's definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, the very first thing he says is love is what? Patient. Yeah. Another way to translate that legitimately is love is not in a hurry. It, love just takes all the time that it needs. So love takes time, hurry doesn't have it. Hurry doesn't have the time because hurry's in a hurry, right? Hurry is distracted, hurry's got things to do, hurry's got places to be, hurry is important. Hurry is just too busy, hurry is not paying attention. And so what Jesus wants us to see is that hurry and love, it's like oil and water, like they're just not compatible, the two don't mix, and they operate at two completely different opposite speeds. One is slow, one is really fast. And uh, there's a book called Three Mile an Hour God. Three Mile an Hour God by a late Japanese theologian. And apparently three miles an hour is the speed of walking. So uh, what this 
theologian does is he talks about how Jesus embodied love with his pace of life as he moved throughout life at this slow, kind of relaxed, three-mile-an-hour pace. He literally was love in the flesh. And uh, here's, a, here's a quote from the book. I think it's worth sharing. It says, God walked slowly because he's love. If he's not love, then he would have gone much faster. Love has its speed. It is an inner speed. It is a spiritual speed, a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It is slow, yet it is Lord over all other speeds since it is the speed of love. What a beautiful, profound quote. One of the most amazing things you notice in the life of Jesus is that he lived with a deep sense of purpose and mission and urgency, and yet somehow he was never in a hurry. He, he moved at the speed of love, this author says, which is relaxed and not in a rush and not anxious about the next thing, but fully present to the moment, fully present to his soul, fully present to the person or people right in front of him, fully present to his father and what he's up to in the world around him. And what I want you to see this morning is in Luke chapter 10, as, as his disciples, Jesus calls us to follow him and change our pace to his pace and to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life and slow down and learn to reorient your life around the speed of love, the speed of being fully human, which is the way of loving God and loving others. Everybody with me? Luke chapter 10 Jesus shows us what what this looks like. First, he gives us an example of how we're called to love one another. Then he gives us an example of how we're called to love God. And he shows us how both of these require us to slow way down. Let's talk first about the speed of loving one another. So thanks for being patient. I know that was a long introduction. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus is teaching. All of a sudden, he gets interrupted. Pay attention to that, by the way. Luke says he gets interrupted and this lawyer stands up and puts Jesus to the test and says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, how do I experience real life? Verse 26, Jesus says to him, Well, what's the Bible say? And the man says, Well, it says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And notice Jesus agrees with him. This, you've answered correctly. That must feel really nice to hear that from Jesus. Jesus himself taught that, that the, the, the greatest commandment in all the scripture is to love God with all your being. And the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, all the commandments in the Bible depend on and hang on those two things. In other words, you can sum up all of life in Jesus' kingdom with those two commandments. You want to know what life is about? The meaning of life, the definition of life, what it means to be human? Jesus says it means you live in a trusting relationship with me where you love me and you love your neighbor as yourself. That is the meaning and the essence of life. So Jesus agrees with him and then he says, do that and you'll experience life in my kingdom. So at this point, it'd be really nice if the lawyer said, awesome, thanks, thanks Jesus, that's great. But instead, that's not the end of the story. The lawyer decides to challenge Jesus. Never a good idea. Verse 29 The lawyer trying to justify himself said to Jesus, and just who exactly is my neighbor? In other words, who am I responsible to love? And in response to this, Jesus gives one of the most profound illustrations of what it means to love your neighbor. And it's one of the most uh, familiar stories in all of Scripture. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. So starting in verse 30, Jesus says, it's a great story. A lot of scholars think this is not just a story, but it's real life. Um, it's a story that people were aware, aware of, a fact. 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on to the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion or mercy. Now, we don't have time to get into it, but what Jesus is doing is something brilliant. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. There was a deep racial divide, history of violence between the two. And so for Jesus to make the Samaritan to be the good guy in this story has an extra like punch to the, to the religious leaders. But for now, let's keep moving. Verse 34, here's what happens next. The Samaritan goes to this guy who's half dead on the street, picks him up, and Jesus says, bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine, both of which were expensive. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He took care of him. And the next day, now we're a full 24 hours in, he took out two denarii. That's a day's wage, so we're talking about two days' worth of work. That's pretty expensive. And he gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will um, repay you when I come back. Verse 36, which of these three, Jesus says, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the man answered, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yeah, duh. Okay, yeah, exactly. Now you go and do likewise. What Jesus is doing in this passage is he's coming right off these, right off these two commands, love God and love one another. And he starts with the second one. He grabs that second one and he says, I'm going to give you a profound illustration of what it looks like to love your neighbor. That's what this story is. He's given us a, a this, that's answering the guy's question. Well, who's my neighbor and what does it look like to love him? Jesus says, well, here it is. I'm going to tell you a story about a good Samaritan. This is what it looks like to love other people. And so when it comes to loving people, the primary thing you see uh, in the example of the good Samaritan is that he just wasn't in a hurry. I mean, what, notice in the story, everybody else just rushes past this guy on the street um, you have the Jewish priest and the Levite who just walk right past this guy. He's a fellow Jew, probably on his way back from the temple, worshiping, laying on the street. He's been ambushed and beaten and robbed. He's half dead, and they just walk right past him. And the point Jesus wants us to see in these guys is that they're the example of not love. <laughs> this is what love does not look like. This is the antithesis of love because they're too busy and unwilling to stop and help this guy. And if you're anything like me, it's, it's really easy to judge these guys and think, how could this is another human laying half dead on the street? Like, how could they not stop and help this guy? But before we throw stones at them, here's what we have to realize. Um, scholars talk about how these guys were probably not being intentionally mean and hateful in their heart. It's just that they had other things to do, which is super convicting to me, I'll be honest. They, had, they, they were on a road because they had somewhere to be, right? They had an agenda. This was not on their agenda. These guys were, uh, we know from the Old Testament, both, you know, the, the Levitical community and the priests worked at the temple, so, and a lot of them lived in Jericho. So these guys, were all, they were just on their way to work. They were on their way to go work a two-week shift at the temple, or they were on their way back from work. How many of you, raise your hand, have you ever, I'm serious, participate with me. Don't, don't make me feel alone. Raise your hand if you've ever been in a hurry to get to work. Okay, raise your hand if you've ever been in a hurry to get home from work. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's nice, coming home at the end of the day, except for when Susanna is like punching you in the face and that sort of thing, that doesn't feel very nice, which usually happens. 
The point, the point of the story is, what we want you guys to see is like, these, these, guys are, these guys are no different from you and me. It's so easy for me to stand back and judge these guys until I realize that like, so often in my life, I am the priest and the Levite in this story. And I'm just in a hurry, and I'm just not, I'm just not willing or able to pay attention to what matters most in the moment. I mean, the other day I was in such a hurry to get out the door and to get to get the kids to school in such a rush. The mornings are so, so rushed. Uh, trying to get the kids out the door, get them to school, get to work on time. Had a lot of stuff to do, all this kind of stuff. And so I turn around and I'm bolting for the door and I literally just mow over Susanna, my middle child. Just like run right over her with my body. Just like, just crush her. And I spill my coffee and I'm irritated and somehow this is her fault, right? Like, and so I stop in just a moment, I feel the spirit convict me and I stop and I just pick her up and I, I hold her and I repent and I say, I'm so sorry. Like, dad, dad really needs to, needs to learn to slow down. Really need to learn to slow down. Hurried people hurt people. Hurried people run past the things that matter most. And I think that's Jesus' point in this story. And Maybe finding an almost dead person on the side of the road is an extreme example. But think about the countless different opportunities in your life or different things, opportunities to love, invitations to stop and be with another person, whatever. The things that you are overlooking because you're unwilling to change your pace and you're moving too quickly. And that's Jesus' whole point. Listen, he's just calling his disciples to slow down, change our pace, because again, hurry is incompatible with love. It's just oil and water. To get even more practical, I think in the Samaritan, you see three examples of what it looks like to slow down and love somebody. Uh, we'll put this on the screen and we'll walk through these. I think you see three ways of love that require you to slow down, and I'll move through these. Number one, this is what you see in the Samaritan and in the life of Jesus, who's the ultimate good Samaritan. Uh, love slows down enough to embrace interruptions. This is, this is super convicting to me. Um, Jesus wants us to see that the Samaritan, this guy, the Samaritan guy is not a saint. He's, he's like anybody else. He's on that road because he's going somewhere. He has somewhere to be. He has responsibilities. He has things to do. But when he sees this guy, he stops to help him. And the point is, this was not on his schedule. His day got interrupted. And as Jesus tells this story, he's very well aware of what that's like. Because if you, when you read the Gospels, you look at the life of Jesus, he is constantly getting interrupted. In fact, most of his teachings and his parables come out of responses to interruptions, including this one. Jesus is, he gets interrupted by this lawyer, and then we get this brilliant teaching from Jesus. So Jesus is constantly being interrupted by people. And, and he's just being Jesus. He's not in a hurry. He's not distracted. This is not on his schedule but he's fully present to the moment, to the spirit, and to the people around him. He slowed down enough to embrace interruptions. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said that how you respond to interruptions is who you really are. That hurts me a little bit. How you respond to interruptions is who you really are. What comes out of you when you get interrupted? When your agenda gets thwarted? When your comfort time gets interrupted, what happens when you're trying to cook dinner or watch the game and your kids are driving you nuts because, you know, they want you to come play with them or my sister slapped me or something like that? I mean, 
uh, you're trying to get the kids to school and traffic is a little slower because somebody had a fender bender, but I don't really care about them. The point is that accident was not on my schedule and now I'm going to be even later than I already was going to be because I was already in a hurry to begin with, right? Or you bump into somebody that you know at Walmart and my goodness, you're in Walmart, you're just trying your best to get in and get out, right? Like nobody wants the black hole, man. Nobody wants to be in there very long. So you're just trying to get, get in and get out and you run into somebody that you know and they want to spend 15 minutes talking about like this new relationship they're in or how their grandma's doing or how they had to take their dog to the vet and you're just, you know, this is what you're doing, right? By the way, none of you will probably ever talk to me in Walmart again. Um, <laughs> And, and so you, you, you have to manage the tension between boundaries and embracing interruptions. Like there are some times where you legitimately have to say, I'm really sorry at the moment, I just have to go. But the point is, how do you respond in those unplanned moments when your guard is down and you don't have time to craft a response and it's just who you are in the moment? I don't know about you, but, but for me... I typically respond to interruptions with anxiety at best because I got things to do um, and I'm worried about those or irritation and anger at worst. Which doesn't that say something about the pace of my mind and my body and my soul? That like, so, like that when you stop me in a moment, my, my mind, body and soul just want to keep going. It's like I have the image of a train like slamming on its brakes and it's just like grinding to a halt like... If that happens to you and you get interrupted, like that's your body. That's God trying to say, like, something's wrong with your pace of life. Like, you're moving through life too fast. You should be able to come to me and interrupt me. And even if I don't have the time at the moment, even if I have to, like, draw that boundary and say, I want to speak with you. Right now I have this other obligation. You should still feel, you should leave my presence feeling seen and heard and, and that you had my attention, even if just for a few moments. God, I pray that's the way my kids talk about me when they're out of the house. Man, we had dad's attention. I know that. He was present with us, even when there was a, everything was chaos. That's the speed of love. That's the speed of relationship. And it's one that's willing to slow down and embrace interruptions. Interruptions are not, are not obstacles to your kingdom, their opportunities to love other people. That's what it looks like in the, in the kingdom of God. Second thing we see in the Samaritan is that love slows down long enough to feel compassion. You see that at the end of verse 33. Jesus says that when the Samaritan saw this man, he had compassion on him. Compassion is a feeling word. It means that your heart works and you're able to be, be your, your heart can be penetrated by another person's emotions and in their situation. And your heart can break and you can be affected emotionally by them. And, and you can feel what they're feeling and you can empathize with them and you can have mercy on them. But guess what? You can't do that in a hurry. I know that from personal experience. Hurry sabotages our ability to love because hurry won't let you slow down long enough to even care. That's what's happening on this road. Like, they just, they don't care. Look, it's a busy road. Somebody will take care of this guy. I got to go. I got places to be, things to do, which is legitimate. I got places to go, things to do. But the point is, hurry won't let you slow down long enough to even let your heart catch up to you and just break for a moment for this other human and what, what they're going through. Like, you just, hurry won't let you do that. 
You can read all about this online. I had a bunch of quotes I just had to pull from the sermon because I don't have time. Um, but all these sociologists and clinical psychologists are writing about this epidemic in our culture called the compassion deficit. It's a real problem. And, and what they're saying is our, our nation is declining in compassion and growing in outrage. And so it's the reason why we don't have room to tolerate one another anymore for disagreement. So if you tolerate, if you disagree with my politics or religion or my diet or the way that I, you know, parent my kids or whatever, then the rule of culture is we're supposed to hate each other and get on social media and just rip the fire out of each other, right? And slander each other and all that kind of stuff. And, and at, the, at the end of all these reports and all this research, what they're attributing this to is, is, a, is a, a culture of pathological busyness. We don't have space anymore to like sit down with another person or at least even get on the phone and like hear another person's voice or get with another person where you're not on Snapchat or some sort of Facebook feed and like actually look at the other person and try to feel maybe they do vote this way or maybe they do believe that but like where in the world are they coming from it's they're human so I'm going to feel with this other person I'm going to get in their shoes and 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 even if we disagree I want them to feel listened to and seen and heard and and cared for even if we disagree with our position and when somebody feels like they've had your attention and they they feel the compassion of your eyes and 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 your ears and your listening presence at a neurobiological level they experience that as love but you can't do it in a hurry you got to you can't live a compassionate life in a hurry you have to slow down long enough to even feel. Let your heart break for someone. Or we'll just keep running past each other. Number three, love slows down long enough to embrace interruptions. Number two, to feel compassion. Finally, love slows down long enough to spend time, time with people. The Samaritan spent money on this guy. He spent time and energy on this man, at least somewhere around 24 hours, at least a day he spent with him. He invested in him. This goes back to Paul saying love is patient. Love is not in a hurry. It's about time. It goes back to that adage of love is spelled T-I-M-E. Like for me to provide, I can't, it's not enough for me to provide for my kids and say like there's a roof and you have clothes and you have food. And so that's how you know that I love you. That's one way. Those things are necessary, but in the kingdom of God, you want to know, the, the, according to Jesus, the number one way people know that you love them? Your time and your presence. You give them your presence. And when you're in a hurry, you can't give somebody your, your presence because when you're in a hurry, you can't be present. You're not present. When I'm in a hurry, I'm not in the moment. I'm, my mind is miles away to, I hope I don't drop that ball. Oh my God, what about this thing? I've got to, I never did respond to that person. I've got to do this and this bill is late and I've got to, and I can't wait to watch the next episode of whatever. It's like, you can't be present when you're in a hurry. And so you can't give someone your presence when you're in a hurry. And so that's why most of, uh, pretty much all of my worst moments as a husband, uh, as a dad, as a friend, as a pastor, as an MC leader, my worst moments are when I'm in a hurry and I, I just don't have the capacity to give you my attention. Um, it's why sometimes my wife feels overlooked by me, like the dead guy, half dead guy on the side of the road. Um, when outside of Jesus, she's my number one 
priority, right? It's supposed to be. Sometimes I've, I've been in moments, it hadn't happened in a while, but there's, there's, it used to happen in Kansas City where I'd be in such a hurry. Sometimes I'd just leave before she even got up. But in such a hurry to get out the door that I don't even stop and kiss her goodbye. Um, or like schedule date nights or pray with her in the evening. And um, I've spent the last five years repenting of that and working on that because she's too wonderful to miss. My kids are too wonderful to miss. Life in this community with you guys, with my friends, with my missional community is too wonderful to miss. Life in the kingdom of God is too wonderful to miss. And yet our fear as pastors is that we're just missing it. We're just missing it. Because our, like our necks are like cranes. I mean, like we're just, we're just, we're just missing it. We're just missing it. So, most of us are just, we're just too busy. We're just addicted to work and activity and screens. And Jesus stops and he says, look, life is relational, not digital. Like for all the pros of, of social networking, of allowing us to connect with people across the world, it's, caused us, it's divorced us from the people across the room. And like, you just, you just can't do relationship when you're that addicted to distraction. And when you can't just be still and be with another person. Do this. Slow down and orient your life around the speed of love, loving other people, loving God. And Jesus says, you will live. You will experience life. And he shifts gears, okay? He starts with an example of loving others. And now he's going to move to what is most important, okay? The greatest commandment, the greatest of them all, Jesus says is, you're not just called to love one another, but you're called to slow down and orient your life around loving God, receiving God's love and giving love back to him. And so look at verse 38. He, 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 he shifts gears. He moves to an example of what it looks like to love God. He tells a new story about these two sisters, Mary and Martha. And here's what he says. And I'll read this, make, a couple, make, make some points, and, and we'll be done. Verse 38. Luke says, um, Now, as they went on their way, Jesus enters a village... And a a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Martha was distracted, I would underline that word, with much serving. And so she went up to Jesus and she said, Lord, do you not even care? My sister's left me in here to serve. Like, I'm in here busting it, and she's in there sitting down. Like, tell her to get up and help me. And the Lord answers her, Martha, Martha, you are what? Anxious and troubled about many things. There's a hurry in your chest, Martha, and you're anxious, and you're troubled about many things. So Luke's drawn a contrast between these two sisters, Mary and Martha, and and what he and Jesus both want us to see is that they represent two basic approaches to life. You have the Mary way, and you have the Martha way, and I'll run through this um, on the screen for you. You've got in this story, Mary, who's all about being. She's being still at the feet of Jesus. And you have Martha, who's all about doing and getting things done. Mary's more concerned about the relationship with Jesus. Martha's consumed with her responsibilities and things she's trying to do for Jesus. You get the sense that Mary's the kind of person who lives with a full heart. Martha's the kind of person driven by a full schedule. Notice in the story, Mary is still. Martha is hurried. She can't sit still. Mary is listening. Martha is talking. She's in the kitchen barking orders at Jesus. Mary is focused. Luke says Martha, he literally says she is distracted. 
not focused in verse 40. Finally, we see that Mary is obsessed about one thing. Jesus says in verse 41, Martha's worried about many things. million things on her mind, on her plate, that she just can't turn it off, shut it down, put it down. She doesn't know how. Let's be honest with ourselves. Totally safe place. No guilt, no shame. Raise your hand if on most days you resonate more with Martha than you do Mary. Yeah, we live in a Martha culture. I certainly resonate with Martha. And um, I don't want to make a point to slam Martha. In fact, I want to say that it's important for us to notice she's not doing, she's doing a lot of things, but she's not doing anything overtly wicked. All the things that she's doing are good and necessary and things that she has, they have to get done. She's working hard, which is a virtue. It's a sin to be lazy. So Jesus is not attacking hard work. The point he's trying to make is that there's clearly something going on in Martha's soul. She is not okay. She's irritable. She's touchy. She's grouchy. She's anxious. Emotionally, she is miserable. Relationally, she's not on good terms with her sister. And if those things aren't bad enough, Jesus wants us to see that her spiritual life, that is her connection with him, is in danger. And so Jesus says in verse 41, right? Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. You're, you're doing all these other things, but you're neglecting the one thing your soul desperately needs to live. And then look at this next line. Jesus says this, your sister Mary has chosen the one thing necessary, the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Jesus is such a brilliant teacher. This is a phenomenal wordplay that he's doing. Think about this with me. Martha's been cooking all day. She knows Jesus is coming to her house, and so as the guest of honor, she is preparing for him uh, the good portion. She'd be, she'd be cooking for him the best of the best of what she has. And Jesus looks at her and he says, Martha, Martha, you're trying to give me the good portion, but you've missed the point, sweetheart. I am the good portion. Like, you think that I came to your house so that you could feed me, but I actually came to your house so that I could feed you. And, and your sister Mary has chosen what is best. She's chosen the good portion. She's feasting on the bread of life, which nobody can take away from her, Jesus says. And so Jesus wants Martha, and he wants us to see that our souls were made for one thing. At the end of the day, there's one thing your soul needs to be alive, and that is to be connected, consciously connected to and aware of the presence of Jesus. By faith, trusting Jesus, and abiding in the vine, being in a spot where you know Jesus intimately, where the gospel is not just this cerebral thing, but it's alive in your bones. You're filled with the Spirit. You have this connection with Jesus. You, you, you have space in your life where you practice the presence and you move through life yoked together with Jesus. That's... That's what life is about, to be with Jesus, to love him, to receive his love, and to give his love back. And Jesus' whole point, again, to beat a dead horse, is you can't do that in a hurry. You, you can't do that if you're addicted to distraction, like Martha is. So the problem with Martha is her life's so crammed full, she doesn't have room for the one thing her soul needs. She's starving her soul of what it needs to live. That's why John Ortberg says, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Like if he can't, if he can't get you with temptation to lust or like whatever, like he, he'll, just, he'll just, here's another push notification. 
Here's another alert. Here's another text. Here's another email. Here's another show to watch. Here's another thing to experience, another thing to read and learn. Here's another thing to do. Like, that's how the devil shows up in the form of busyness because busyness and sin functionally serve the same purpose. They cut you off from the presence of God. It's impossible to be aware of God's presence and be that busy and distracted. And so the primary way this works is hurry steals your attention. I don't think I put this on the screen, but I would write it down. Hurry keeps you from God by stealing your attention. That's what it does. Martha is so rushed and so distracted that she's, her attention's gone. She's lost sight of God even though he is standing in her living room talking to her. And she can't see it. She's so disconnected from having any awareness that she's in the presence of God and that's what her soul needs. And when you get that distracted, the devil has you right where he wants you. And I, I, don't, I don't think, we don't think as pastors, I have, I have an iPhone, it's like I, I do mo- a lot of work on it. I think it's a, and it's a great thing. I, we, we talk a lot about the pros of the, of the digital age and modern technology. I, they're not, it's not evil. I just don't think we talk enough about the cons. I think we'd be foolish not to. Um, so just to kind of slam on, on that just for a second. There, there are literally thousands. Martha had it bad enough. We have it even more difficult, I would argue. There are literally thousands of apps and devices that are intentionally designed to steal your attention. That's how they make their money. You're the product. You're not buying a product. You are the product. They're making billions on you in Silicon Valley because they're all they're doing just by stealing your attention. And so you have all these whistleblowers leaving these organizations like Facebook and Google and stuff like that, and they're blowing the whistle and they're saying, this is unethical. It's unethical for us to design these, these devices and these apps intentionally to get you addicted and then lie to the public about it and say that that's not what we're doing. And that is what we're doing. And so these guys don't smoke what they're selling, to use a crude analogy. All the guys who invented these apps and stuff are like coming out, a lot of them are coming out of that and, and saying like, for ethical reasons, I can no longer do that. And they, they don't put their, they put their kids in device-free schools because they're saying that stuff's making us more machine-like and less human. And I don't want that for my children. Again, I got a thousand quotes. I wish I had a thousand hours. I'd share them all with you, but I don't. And so this, this whole thing has been compared to the cigarette scandal back in 1995. You had all these guys leaving the big tobacco companies for ethical reasons because big tobacco was lying about intentionally designing cigarettes to get you addicted. They were telling the public, like, that's not what we're doing. But behind the scenes, they were actually designing these things to, to get you addicted. And so people have talked about what's going on with apps and what's going on with cigarettes, and they've compared the two. And here's what one writer says. I'll put it on the screen. Comparing the two. The tobacco companies wanted your lungs. That's bad enough. The app store wants your soul. Like, it wants to destroy your capacity for love. It wants to get you so addicted, so hooked, so bought in that you forget that you're a human that you're so disconnected from the presence of God. The most pervasive reality in all the universe is the radical availability of God's presence. And most of us are too busy to see it. So the app store wants your soul, dude. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying you've got to have some boundaries and some wisdom about how you deal with it. And so the question we have to ask as we step into a brand new decade, 2020, I'm excited about it. Um, the question I think we have to ask is, what is all this distraction, addiction, and pace of life doing to our souls? What's it doing to our relationship with God and with others? 
Who or what are we becoming? What if I could somehow restructure my life where I could feel the Spirit of God touch my heart and my mind as many times as I touch my phone? What if I was so not numb by all the push notifications and alerts I get all day that I could feel all the push notifications and alerts that the Spirit of God is trying to prompt and push in me all day long? The things He's trying to tell me, hey, God loves you. Hey, Adam, I see you. Hey, Adam, go talk to this person. Hey, Adam, pray for that person. Hey, Adam, share the gospel with that person. Like all those push notifications that I'm numb to because I'm so addicted to distraction. Like what if I could restructure my life where I was that in tune with the spirit and that out of tune with my phone? What if? What if there's a better way to live? Jesus is inviting Martha. He's inviting us to choose a different way to live to reorient and restructure your life around the one thing necessary, the good portion, being with Jesus, staying close to Jesus, and loving others from that place. And if you want to know what that looks like, Mary models that really well for us in the story. She's practicing the presence of Jesus. She's sitting at his feet. She's quiet. She's soaking in his presence. She's experiencing his love. And Jesus says, remember, that's how you get the good portion that can't be taken from you. That's how you eat so that you have something to feed others with. She's clearly restructured her life. So to close, three things that you can can implement just this week to help you begin this journey. I don't have time to really spell this out, but three things. First, I just want to invite you to start paying attention to the speed at which you're moving through life. Um, How often do you notice yourself in a hurry? What does that feel like? How's that affecting your thought life? How's that affecting your body? Are you tired? Are you exhausted? Are you anxious? That's God speaking to you through your body, telling you that you're not operating within the limits of your humanity and the way he designed you, like something's off. Um, How's your relationships? Without any judgment, condemnation, or shame, just start to pay attention to your pace and just notice, see what you see. Second, practice slowing down. Say no to something, a really good thing, like a Christmas party or something, I don't know. Say no to something. Take out your phone when you leave here and get your schedule and murder six things on your schedule. Just murder them. I'm not going to do that this week, right? Um, Just take a day off. I mean, you're building in vain unless you step back and just trust that God can run the universe without you. Like we, you and I are not that important. Take a day off for the love of God. Practice the Sabbath. Take a full 24 hours where you like don't do anything but just commune with God and enjoy God and enjoy all the gifts he's given you and just be thankful. Create some boundaries with your screen time. I'm not going to get rid of my iPhone. I need it for work. It's helpful to communicate with my friends and with my wife and all that kind of stuff. So all my picture, I wouldn't be able to take a picture of my kid if I didn't have an iPhone. So, but I'm saying you got create some boundaries, find ways to slow down with it. Show up at your family meal and and put it away. Put it away at your family meal. Make eye contact with other people. Give people a hug. Greet them in the name of Jesus. Speak a word of blessing over them. Be be in tune with the Spirit and what He's doing in that moment. Just, Just put yourself in situations where you have to slow down. Third and finally, practice spending time intentionally connecting with Jesus through daily silence and solitude and through something we might call fixed hour prayer. Silence and solitude is just where you like, man, make some space, five minutes, 10 minutes, could be up to 30 minutes. Make some space just to sit and just 
Just quiet your soul. It's best time to do it in the morning. Just be with Jesus. Be still. Let your soul catch up to your body. Yesterday's wounds. Wounds from 30 years ago. Like things that you're worried about. Things that you're excited about. All your grief, your hopes, your dreams, your fears, insecurities. Let that stuff, let that stuff catch up with you. And practice inviting Jesus into those spaces to meet with you there. Just let yourself be held by him. You don't have to do anything for him. Just be with him. Like our friend Abe Meisenberg says, we struggle with that because we're running at such a pace that when we sit down and try to let Jesus hold us, we squirm in his embrace because it's just not comfortable. Like I got to be doing something. Just practice letting him hold you. Just be with him. Some of you, you know, struggle to love other people because you won't be still and let God love you. And you can't give what you don't have. So just be still and just... Spend time with him and receive his love. After a few minutes, read a psalm. Read a passage of the New Testament. Chew on it for just a moment. Ask the Spirit to help you hear it and obey it. Ask the Spirit to help you go with him and walk at his pace throughout the day. And then fixed hour prayer is just, I've got a couple of interruptions on my phone that just make me stop. And like, I'm talking like two minutes, like it's 180 seconds. I'm going to stop, take a breath, and realize that like I'm a human. That ball I just dropped, that's because I'm human. This next thing I got to do, I need your help with it. I'm just going to reconnect with you for a moment, Jesus, and just kind of breathe you in and realize that, that this is what life is all about. And then I'm, I'm going to take you with me in these next moments. This, this, this is how we slow down to the pace of Jesus, which is the pace of love. Do this and you will live, Jesus says. And that's the invitation to all of us this morning. Life. Life.